Support for Small Joys comes from the Columbus Foundation, celebrating the creativity that inspires and strengthens the Central Ohio community every day. More at columbusfoundation.org. WOSU Public Media, this is Small Joys. I'm Hanif Abdurraqib. For this episode, my guest is Dr. Mark Lomax II. Mark's a critically acclaimed drummer and composer. In 2019, he released his magnum opus, a 12-album work called 400, an African epic. The project explores the story of African people through over 1,000 years of history, from the pre-colonial period through the slave trade to the present and into the future. Mark was traveling the country performing the work when COVID ended that tour prematurely, and he's excited to get back on the road when he can. One quick note, instead of hearing our regular theme music this episode, we'll be using some selections from Mark's work. I began our conversation by asking Mark about how the idea of epic storytelling influences his music. form that you seem to operate in really well is the epic mm-hmm. or the the really prolonged musical project that embodies more than just music and I'm wondering where your interest in that uh, the epic as form even if you're not calling something an epic it still feels you know your projects are so immersive and fulfilling what draws you to that so consistently well thank you um, I Honestly, I had very intentional thinking about that when I was a kid. By kid, I mean 15, 16 years old. Um, Because I was studying composition, and I kept seeing how European and European-American composers would say that there was no value in long-form African-American vernacular musical structures like jazz, blues, gospel, and the like. Uh, specifically, Aaron Copeland said, yeah, I checked jazz out, but, you know, can't really do anything with it. <laughs> I was like, huh? <laughs> what are you talking about? Because simultaneously I was immersed in the work of Duke Ellington and Charles Mingus in particular. And then in 1997, I think, is when Wynton Marsalis uh, released Blood on the Fields. And I also met Hannibal Lacumbe, who's a, a trumpet player and composer. He composed um, uh, African Portraits, which premiered with Chicago Symphony, and he's written so many other pieces uh, that are oratorial style. And they all infused elements of uh, vernacular black music, blues, gospel, spirituals, jazz, while also obviously using Western European compositional elements. And so uh, I wanted to put my stamp on our form, not to refute Aaron Copeland, I could care less about Aaron, but because (laughs) of the narrative scope of our culture, everything about our culture is story. And I thought that if I was going to make music that was relevant to the culture, then it had to be narrative-based. And, you know... You are you write books, you write poetry, and it's always story driven. I feel the same about my music. So 
um, when I'm thinking about an album, I'm thinking about the whole album and not just, you know, five to ten tracks that are individual. You know, they have to have some kind of narrative scope. You know, when I was coming up, you know, I'm the youngest of, of four, which is great if you, I think, if you are a lover of music and you have older siblings who mm -hmm. love music, you know, it's a real gift. And I remember coming up in the city and my, my oldest brother went to the University of Cincinnati at the time Jay Rawls was there. Mm -hmm. And they're frat brothers. And so my, my exposure to music in the city was as a kid just through this lens of going from place to place and seeing so many different things and... You know, my dad drummed with Tony West and these kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, and it was fascinating for me as a, as a teenager and early 20s person to kind of get on my own and immerse myself in the music and poetry culture of Columbus and realize that stuff was just everywhere all the time. Um, or it felt like that, you know, it mm -hmm. felt like every night I could just like stumble into anywhere and something yeah. would be happening. Um, and you were kind of, I mean, you've been here a while and you've created here for a while. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the the changes in Columbus's musical landscape, hmm. even, even pre-pandemic. I mean, obviously, you know, the pandemic and, and coming out of the pandemic will create a shift that right, I think right. uh, will linger for a long time. But... Uh, the shifts even before that, that I, I think uh, are notable because I, I fully believe the city kind of, for me or my version of the city, comes and, and goes and ebbs and flows with the black arts community and the black writers and, and music makers. So I was wondering if you could talk about that legacy as someone who's been a part of it for a long time. Yeah, I, I think one of the major shifts came around 9-11. Um, Columbus used to be really hip. Like, and I don't mean that because I was a kid exploring everything, you know. But to your point, you know, as a teenager, well, I became professional as a musician at 12. And as a teenager, you know, whether I had access to a car or not, similarly, I felt like you could turn the corner and just run into something, someone in Columbus that was interesting, doing fantastic stuff. And um, was kind of, you know, excitedly a part of a lot of that. Uh, in the early to late 90s. And then uh, around 99, uh, I started doing more things on the road. And by 2001, I had kind of temporarily shifted to being based out of New Orleans. And I came back right before 9-11. I came back late in the summer. And my daughter was born in October. So between like August and October, I'm trying to figure out what's going on to get re-engaged in the city and things had completely changed and the vibration of the city was different. And I don't know if it's, I changed because I was in new Orleans and had that experience or, or what, but it felt like leading up to nine 11, there was a huge shift in the vibration and uh, a friend of mine and artistic partner, Eddie Bayard was in New York at the time. He said he felt the sim a similar shift. So it wasn't just Columbus. And I don't think Columbus really recovered artistically. Black Columbus, to your point, has had artistic ebbs and flows, but the city has been forever different to me since then. You know, we had snaps and taps. We had mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of clubs around the city that you could play any kind of music. I mean, from 1992 to 99, I played, you know, 
eight or 12 times a week, sometimes two or three times a day. And I never played the same kind of music back to back. You know, I was playing in a, a, a Latin folk band, uh, a rock band, gospel groups, jazz groups, hip hop. We were playing everything. And by 2000, 2001, I couldn't find that same variety uh, as available in the city in terms of venues openly operating and, and supporting that kind of work. And um, thank goodness, you know, this seems to be a resurgence with folks like Scott Woods uh, and Streetlight Guild and uh, the uh, Johnstones hosting the new music concert series they do uh, through the Johnstone oh, yeah. Fund of New Music yeah. that often is uh, held at uh, Short North Stage. So, you know, there are pockets now, but it's so siloed. It's, it's strange, you know. And as a musician, it's become ever harder to work in Columbus. So for the last 20 years, we've really focused on touring and, and playing elsewhere, you know, and living here and taking advantage of the relative low cost of living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about the siloed nature of it, because mm -hmm. I think that's the thing for me is that, um, and maybe this was some youthful whimsy that I no longer have, but it really did feel like I could just kind of like walk down the street, you know, when I was younger yeah. and pop yeah. into anywhere and feel anything. And I, some of that was real. Some of that is me maybe romanticizing the past a little bit. No, nah, man, does in, in feel... the short north, you know, on any given day, you yeah. can find, you know, any number of venues open. And then uh, Old Town East, there were at least two or three places there. There were places on the south side, on the east side, north side. I mean, you could literally bump into something cool happening. Even downtown. They had some downtown, experimental say, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Experimental stuff was happening downtown in the late 90s. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, man. Maybe we're just older. Maybe. <laughs> it's so funny because I moved, you know, like one of the first things I did when I could have, when I had the money and could move out on my own, I moved to Victorian Village. So I wanted to be close to the short north. This is when Victorian Village was, you know, this wasn't ages ago, but it was more affordable than it is now. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, I'm going to move out there. So I'm going to be close to the short north and all this. And then after a few months, yeah, I was like, oh, this isn't. Yeah. This is not what I remember. You know, it's mm -hmm. like maybe. Um, and uh, I will say it is interesting. I mean, you know, a big a big thing for me was was moving back to King Lincoln, moving into King Lincoln. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested to th see how things continue to evolve uh, post-pandemic. I think part of the excitement in the 90s, let's say, uh, is that things were completely disaggregated, and yet it was a sense of unity. In, in, in the at least in the black arts scene, you know, and now we actually have organizations <laughs> and it seems like there's less going on, but it's more organized and controlled, you know, and I don't know that that has any impact, good or bad on the scene itself or even the quality of the production, but it's changed a lot. And maybe that's because we learned a lot back then and, you know, are, are trying to make things more significant and more substantial in terms of the sustainability of the work. But when you're building, you know, a lot of times the work in laying the foundation goes unseen, you know, right. so maybe we're just in that phase of, of building for the long term, you know. I also want to talk to you about kind of creating and composing for all ages, which I think is an interesting part of your life's work that 
fascinates me more than most other parts of your life's work because <laughs> I think it's well because I think it's hard. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's hard. I'm not only thinking about four women, but I'm also thinking about just some of the other work you've done. Um like educating and composing for groups from like elementary school all the way up through adults. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm someone who, who, when it comes to like writing workshops and whatnot, you know, I wish I could effectively t- <laughs> teach, teach like elementary school students, but I just can't, it's just not, I don't got it. I don't got it in me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm wondering what, what goes into that for you and how you, how you take to that kind of work. It actually honestly comes naturally. I benefit from being the son of a woman who was an elementary school reading specialist. And um, she also is a composer of religious music for kids. Hmm. And so being a, a precocious young musician, none of the adults that I was around in terms of you know the black church music scene that I grew up on, really took me seriously and let me do things with the adult choirs. <laughs> but my mom would let me work with her choirs because she could kind of control what I did, right? So she was able to really steer me and guide me in a way that really gave me a hyper-focus on creating music that was exciting for the kids to sing to while paying attention to a lyric that was age-appropriate. And what I saw through that process, and of course, you know, I'm still my mom's musical director, and I'll probably be that until, you know, she stops doing music. But what I learned was that when we nailed it, when we got a piece that the kids enjoyed singing, it had an intense affect on the adults as well. And then, you know, the more I got into improvised music, uh, I would do concerts for preschoolers because my wife used to work, Ruth used to work at a preschool, uh, a couple preschools. She'd have me, you know, she volunteered me to come and play for the kids. <laughs> and uh, we would play the way we normally played. And the kids would get up and they'd dance and they'd hop around. They enjoyed it. And that let me know that as long as we had an intention to be authentic and to be inclusive across the various age demographics we would perform for, everyone could get something out of it. So I, I learned not to treat the kids like their kids artistically, in a sense, like to understand that if I frame and, and um, contextualize the work in a way that they can understand it, not only will they understand, but they will enjoy and engage the work. You know, So you mentioned four women. I wasn't thinking about kids when I wrote for women just because, you know, (laughs) but it's now so much a part of my work that in order for it to be relevant, I know that I I need to be able to explain it uh, so that a fifth grader could get it and a 90 year old could get it, you know, and I don't have to change much by way of content, but I do change the words. I'm not going to use quadrisyllabic words to talk to a five-year-old, but I might not use those (laughs) kinds of words to talk to a 90-year-old, you know what I mean? Right. So audience has always been important and we wanted to make sure that everything I compose and that we play can be engaged in a multi-generational way. And part of that too is because my family really didn't like the fact that I played secular art music at all. So I also (laughs) then had to, you know, spend a lot of time as a kid justifying what I was doing to my dad who's a preacher my mom who's a 
gospel music minister and my grandparents who are really conservative Christians. So I think that helped too, you know? Yeah, and I, I struggle with the word accessible because I think that oftentimes when work is called accessible, particularly by folks who are not black, they're meaning something different than what I imagine it as. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, cause when I think about the kind of access I feel when I'm an audience to your work, it is not an access of, it's not about ease. Right. Or about, right. it's or about comfort, right? It's mm -hmm. about like what, what gets unlocked mentally for me mm -hmm. that allows me to see slash feel something that I previously wouldn't feel. I don't often hear your work talked about with the, the, the normal, the uh, or the usual sense of accessibility, but <laughs> no. I, I am no. I am wondering if you think about. I mean, when you are when you are creating, if you're thinking about world building as a tool of accessibility instead of accessibility as something that that breeds a type of comfort or ease. Absolutely, I uh, I like the 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 term world building. I I feel like if I've done my work as a composer, then the work, whatever form it takes should be able to speak for itself to anyone who's open to listening. So as an example, there's a piece I wrote uh, more than 20 years ago now that was part of the 400. It was my first extended work called Tales of, of the Black Experience. And when we went on the 400 tour, 2019 up until COVID shut the world down, we were playing that work for college students, high school students, and anybody else who will listen. And we were in I think we were in Boston playing for a high school and we played the work nonstop for 90 minutes. And these high school kids, I mean, there are pictures of them. Nobody was on their phone, at least in the snapshots. And I don't know if they curated to make sure they found people who weren't on their phones, but it, <laughs> just from the pictures, it looked like everybody was engaged. And um, the teachers came up to us afterwards and remarked how it was the most engaged their student body had been in a, uh, you know, an assembly of, of that sort. And uh, several of the football players got in trouble because they were late to practice because they came up and wanted to talk to us afterwards, right? And again, to your point, the music's not easy. I wasn't writing easy music at 18. I was really trying to push you know, the sonic boundaries of my own imagination and the technical boundaries of the ensemble that I was writing for. Um, but I told the, the young people before we started what to expect. I told them the story of the music. They had a program so they could follow along. Um, and I gave them the context of the work. And not necessarily why it's important, but why I thought it was important f to share this story with them. And in that way, I hope and, and think that I'm bringing audiences into the music as opposed to kind of the uh, Milton Babbitt approach, who cares if they listen? I absolutely care. And I don't only want folks to listen, but I want them to be on this sonic journey with us in a way that, to your point, opens up stuff maybe internally, intellectually, emotionally, that maybe they hadn't allowed themselves or been able to access otherwise. How have you been able to, gosh, I, the only way I can word this is maybe the simplest way, because I think about this with not only folks who produce a lot, uh, but folks who produce a lot at a high level. Have you been able to continually push yourself, particularly during a time where 
there is at least some stagnation. Like I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think I know that mm -hmm. you're still working in a lot of ways, and we all, like most of the people I know who create things, are still working in a lot of ways. But I, I'm curious in how you how you push yourself and try to try to stay on top of, you know, this isn't like uh, athletics where you kind of go out and, and shoot a hundred jump shots a day. <laughs> um, right, right. You know, like how are you how are you staying on top of your craft? That's a great question. I, I, I think there are a couple of things, but. Primarily, for me, I think part of the drive is that I am not able to do it full time. Uh, by, by that, I mean it provides, you know, some uh, financial benefit, but not enough to really support uh, a family of four, a kid in college, a younger kid in private school, and all that kind of stuff, you know. And so... It doesn't get boring to me on the one hand because I don't get to live it every day in the way that I would love to. Uh, that's one. Two, every project is new to me. Every idea that an audience ends up hearing is something that excited me to the point where I couldn't not write it, you know. And that level of excitement means that I'm discovering something new. To your point earlier with that phrase, it's like every piece is a new world that I'm building. And so I'm always trying to figure out what's new about that world. And in that process of discovering that world, I'm also discovering something about myself and um, having to research and learn and discovering things about the world. And I think that's part of what really drives me, um, the fact that it's always new and that I'm not able to really be immersed in it 24-7. So when I do get to it, it's always fresh, you know. And then I'm always trying to challenge <laughs> the musicians I'm working with. I mean, some of these guys are some of the best musicians in the world, and I, I want them to not only enjoy uh, the work and performance, but also be challenged by it. And so they're always practicing. They're always getting better. So that means I always have to present something new and um, maybe a different type of challenge than we did last time. Do you miss touring, though? Do you miss being on the road? Or are you kind of like, it's been great to not have to do the work of traveling? No, man, I miss it. Uh, so yeah. I became a dad and a husband at 22. And I told you I was in New Orleans. So I was living in New Orleans yeah. for the first five and a half or six months of my wife's pregnancy with our first child. And at 22, I wasn't really thinking about all the ramifications of what it would be like to be you know, a touring musician with a family. And so I started asking people like Herlin Riley, who was um, Went Marcellus's drummer at the time, and other people that I was around, and they were telling me, you know, their versions. But it really hit me when I saw my wife come to New Orleans for the Jazz and Heritage Festival, and I saw how her body had changed because of the pregnancy just in the few months I had been gone. And it struck me like, whoa, if she's changing like this in just three or four months, how much is the kid going to change, you know, if I'm on the road for three or four or five months at a time, you know, depending on the tour. And so, you know, we had a long discussion and I decided that I would not tour uh, until th that kid at the time, because we weren't thinking about a second one, uh, got old enough to really be cool without me being in the house all the time, you know. And that decision was made because my father traveled a lot. He's um, a pastor and a theologian. So he's been all over the world giving lectures and preaching and everything. So I grew up 
you know, yeah, my kids, my parents were divorced, but my dad traveled a lot, even, you know, when we were there with him uh, in Atlanta. So I didn't want to be, you know, kind of in a position to perpetuate that cycle. So the 400 tour, all that having been said, really was the first time I've toured the way we would normally tour in almost 20 years. So I was super excited (laughs) to be out on the road. And so when COVID hit, man, I'm not going to lie, it hit me hard that we couldn't finish that tour and would not be able to pick it back up, you know, in the fall as we had scheduled. And so now I'm, I I have a lot of anxious energy, you know, and I'm excited to get back out there when it's safe for uh, us to not only travel, but people to congregate for concerts. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. I mean, I just finished all my book tour stuff and I, at first I was kind of like, you know what? I'm not going to mind doing this on Zoom because mm-hmm. I could finish up and just go back to my living room and relax. But about halfway through, I was like, I, I miss the presence of people. Yeah, it's a you different know, it's, energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I miss the sounds. I miss mm-hmm. the sounds of a place full, full, filled with people. I miss um, the reactions of when people hear something good that they like, the sound you get. I, mm-hmm. I miss those small nuances that you just can't get in a virtual space. And so I... You know, as much as I like being near and around my house, I think halfway through the the tour, I was like, "Oh, this is this is what I'm aching for is that kind of human interaction." Yeah, and then as artists, I think we subconsciously engage the energy of the cities that we visit too, mm-hmm. and I, I, that's one of the things I always admired about musicians. I was fortunate being young to you know, have a relationship with folks like Wynton Marcellus and Wes Anderson and Victor Goins and all these world-class musicians who would come through Columbus or I would catch them somewhere else or I'd be playing with them even. Ellis Marcellus, Delphio, you know, several members of the Marcellus family. And what I really dug about them, what made them cool to me, was that they were so worldly, (laughs) for lack of a better Mm -hmm. word. You know what I mean? They, when they were just in regular conversation, oh yeah, we were in Tokyo for a week, you know, last month, and this is what we were eating, or this is what we were seeing and hanging out, and, you know, just the real cool cosmopolitan nature of black musicians who toured, you know, appealed to me. Duke Ellington was the same way. I got that from him, and, you know, um, so many other people, Charles Mingus, and how they would talk about when they were in Europe, you know, they would even be treated differently than in America, and, you know, that that does something to you. That that shifts the way your work happens because you have all of these experiences. And, you know, that's what I loved about traveling when I was a kid. And I still appreciate it now. So that energy is important, I think, to a part of our process, even if it's subconscious. One thing that I one of the many things I like about you is that you have a reputation for being extremely discerning. <laughs> and, uh, and and uh, which I, I mean, I'm not even, you know, I think that sometimes people approach not with you, but in general, approach that with a type of derision when someone is discerning about what they like or what they know or what they are and are not impressed by. Mm-hmm. But at, for me, as a as a fan of music that has served me well and, and actually serves me very well now because I feel like there's just so much more than ever. There is so much music being released all the time. Um, and so it has served me mm-hmm. in my growing age to kind of be able to hear one song and, and say, I probably don't want to hear the rest of this album. <laughs> um, yeah. Because there's just so many albums to get through. Mm-hmm. There's so much there's so much to get through that I'd much rather 
if something's not for me, I'd love to to figure it out early and then find something that is for me. Yeah. All this is to ask the, the grand question of, is there anything you are impressed by right now or have been impressed by in, in the recent months? So I am impressed by the underground uh, hip hop scene that's coming out of New York right now. My nephew, Ryan Wise, is there at NYU and he's started to you know make tracks and he's teaching me about conscious trap <laughs> and, and, and all of this <laughs> yes. other you know really ambient avant-garde hip-hop that's happening that's very very cool like they're shifting where the beat is and, and how it feels and, and what actually carries the groove itself you know and the tracks are really complex and uh i like stuff that i don't understand and um I, I don't understand this music, but there's something to it. And it, it's it's more substantive in its scope and construction architecture than what we're hearing, you know, obviously in the mainstream. And so, you know, he'll send me stuff every so often, either that he's done or somebody he knows or somebody he's checking out. And um, it's really hip to be excited about learning about music and having someone who's, I think, Ryan's 21, you know, really leading me on that learning journey. Um, I'm excited about, you know, discovering recently the work of Arthur Jaffa, you know. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, learning about stuff that I really feel like maybe I should have learned about, but I was so engrossed in developing my own craft that I didn't really have time to check out or just the blinders didn't allow me to do it, you know. And the discerning part is because... I've always been taught and accepted um, what I think is a fact, that if the work isn't speaking to something, then it's not worth my time. You know, um, I'm not down for corporate constructs. You know, the stuff that's not just formulaic and not just popcorn, but literally a waste of life. Like, they could have spent that time making that record doing something better, like cutting the grass or something, you know? Um, <laughs> because I know the work that I put into to my pieces and my projects, and I know the work that you put in, and I know the work that Scott puts in, and I know the work that, you know, while some of us might have larger platforms than others, we all come from a similar aesthetic, you know? And I just don't see that manifesting in a lot of artists. I don't think they have that same ethic. I don't think they have that same, you know, energy, spiritually or otherwise, um, in their work. And it's just a waste of time for me to listen because it's not going to feed me, you know. Um, Kid Jordan, who is a mentor of mine, he's Sir Edward Kid Jordan, father of Marlon Jordan and others, uh, fantastic musicians, uh, family out of New Orleans. You know, he always would say, I'd rather play in my house then go out and listen to something that's going to be a waste of my time. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, yeah. and he's yeah. like, he's such a brilliant artistic mind. It, that that resonated with me when I was younger. And I said, okay, I, I now have to be more discerning because what you put in is what comes out, you know? You mentioned kind of being guided to music by young folks. Um, and the last real question I have is just how have you that is something that I pride myself in because as I get older, I think I evolve as a listener and I'm almost required to 
kind of call back to the curiosities the musical curiosities that fulfilled my youth, which has been like listening to what everyone else was listening to and asking people questions about what they liked about what they were listening to. Uh, how do you, how do you feel like you've grown as a listener uh, as you've, as you've grown as an artist or grown as a person? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I honestly was just thinking about that not too long ago. And, and I'll say this, not to disparage anybody's love for this institution, but I spent 16 years at Ohio State and didn't learn much. Um, and the reason why is because I was really already in it. And when you go into the academy, they really work to break you down to rebuild you. But I didn't like what they were building me toward. So I didn't really pay attention. I got the grades and then I went on and did my own thing. But there was one comment I remember in all of 16 years of study <laughs> that has stuck with me and resonated. And I asked one of my composition teachers, you know, what are you listening to when you listen to Haydn for the thousandth time, you know? Yeah. And I, I just, I mean, I can sing All of Love Supreme and I still listen to it but I listen to it for a feeling, um, but I know it, you know? Um, and so I was wondering if he knew, you know, this particular piece the way I would know Love Supreme. And I said, so, Doc, what are you, what are you listening to? He said, options. I was like, oh, that's heavy. You know, so I took that, and now every time I'm listening to music, no matter what the genre is, no matter who the artist is, no matter if I like it or not, I'm listening for options, you know, uh, if it's worth me listening to a second or third time, the first time is where I make that judgment. The second or third time, I'm trying to understand why the choices were made that were made to get to the point of, you know, completing the album so I could hear it, you know, and that's everything about the production from various chord progressions, rhythmic choices. Uh, to the sound of the record, you know, where the mic placement is, if there are live drums, you know, all of those kinds of things. Why the vocalist, you know, uh, sang a melismatic run in that way right there. Like, what was the intent? And for a lot of folks in the mainstream, there isn't much intent, but there is some craft that went into that record. And I, I'm listening for those options, trying to just get better at the whole craft of making music. Love that. Dr. Mark Lomax, thank you for joining me, and thanks for spending time talking about tunes, as always. Thanks for having me, man. I really enjoyed it. At the end of every episode, I take some time to share one of my small joys. And if anyone knows me at all, they know that I am a collector of old things or an accumulator of old things, as it were. And at some point during the pandemic, I decided that I wanted to get a grandfather clock. For no real reason, I had space in my house. I like the design of a Swedish Moore clock specifically. Um, and I got one from about 1912 or so, or 1920-ish. And the whole deal with it was that I got it for virtually no money, but it's broken. And the whole thing with the person who sold it was like, you can buy this uh, as long as you can transport it from where it's at to your home, and then you got to fix it. I don't really know how to fix it. And in the boldness of 
you know, the pandemic fall going into winter, I just thought, well, I have plenty of time to fix this. I'll fix it myself. I'll, you know, I'll Google something and YouTube video something. I had also, it, it bears mentioning, I had also just come off of self reupholstering a chair based off of YouTube videos. I saw, I learned how to do it based off of watching YouTube videos. And so my confidence was probably a bit higher than it should have been. And I thought, I can repair this grandfather clock on my own, this Swedish Mora clock that's over 100 years old. And predictably, I cracked it open and, and started to work on it and realized that this was a bit above my station. Uh, and then I set it aside and let it sit in a corner for months and months and months. But uh, I got back to work on it a couple weeks ago and I figured out one small part of one small corner that I repaired all on my own after a lot of painstaking twisting and maneuvering and working my fingers into very small spaces. I was very thankful for that. Realistically, I'm going to have to bring someone else in. I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. And, and I think that's probably safe for everyone. But it was really a relief to get one tiny corner of it done and say, I did that. Small Joys is a production of WOSU Public Media. The show is produced and edited by Michael DeBonis. Sound engineering by Eric French. Nick Hauser is Chief Content Director of Digital Media. Special thanks to Leticia Wiggins for editorial support. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more Small Joys. Small Joys.